welcome to episode 25 of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory, joined as always by Tom Warville. And this week our guest is Paul Riley, our football fact man on Twitter. Paul, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how he got into the whole football analytics scene? Yeah, okay. Hi, guys. Um, as you say, my name's Paul Riley. I run a blog called Different Game. I'm at Football Fat Man on Twitter. Um, so I started writing about football analytics a few years ago, um, all different teams, and then shifted on to Everton, which is my team, and no one was interested in that, so then I uh, shifted back to going for all teams. I um, developed my expected goal models that your listeners will have heard about, and expected assists. I use a lot of passing network stuff, and um, I try and use as much video as I can with all my stuff, but I'm probably best known for my uh, keeper stuff, I think, and I kind of concentrated on that because nobody else was really doing it um, until recently. I know Sam Jackson's come along on the scene and he's doing quite a lot of good stuff recently. Um, in the last year, I've been I've kind of moved away from writing and to try and get more into the data viz side, and I've been using Tableau a lot for that, and that's thanks to. Um, a guy called Neil Charles, who people know on Twitter. He basically did a set of tutorials on it, and I really love using that one, so I use that a lot now. Um, I got involved with analytics, I'd say, because basically everyone talks a lot of rubbish about football, and um, you know, from what you talk about with your friends or, or what you hear about on TV, and I really wanted to kind of learn and find out more about the game. Uh, it's become a bit cheesy now, but I think reading Moneyball for the first time several years ago was like an epiphany for me. I was like, wow, um, somebody else actually thinks kind of like I do about sports and that kind of thing. And then kind of went on the internet and discovered that actually there's quite a lot of stuff um, analytics-wise on, on the internet for sports, not so much for football. But I started digging around and found people like Mark Taylor and Omar Chowdhury and James Grayson, and kind of went from there, really. So one of the sort of uh, originals, as it were, in the uh, football analytics community. Um, yeah. One of your, I mean, a couple of your most recent pieces focus on sort of building an England squad for the upcoming Euros. Do you want to talk yeah. us through sort of the methodology and thinking behind those pieces? Yeah, the, the, the methodology, well, the whole idea really stems from the fact that... Um, I think everybody, all England fans, are kind of a bit fed up with the team and they're not enjoyable to watch and a lot of the decisions, you know, squad-wise, don't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, well not to me, anyway. Um, and, you know, that kind of carries itself onto the pitch where at the last Euros, it was kind of embarrassing with our kind of lack of um, ambition that we showed in those games. It was very much about, you know, avoiding defeat and getting through without kind of getting humiliated and then of course at the last World Cup we didn't make it out of the group stages and um, so it's been kind of a, a bugbear of mine for a long time you know, especially supporting a, a kind of mid-table club like I do and seeing a lot of players that seem to get overlooked based on kind of who they play for and you know big names getting shoved in whether it, it makes sense or not so it was kind of coming up with a framework to um, to try and make sense of you know who is available, 
who is playing regular football and who else could be picked rather than the you know the usual names. And so, how do you think England match up going to the Euros this time around as opposed to the last World Cup and the previous Euros under Roy Hodgson? Um, it's difficult to say really because with the the expansion of this tournament, I think the qualifying's a bit easier. Um, we're not playing any great teams to get there, so I don't think there's any kind of real test. You're only kind of really tested once you actually get there, and it's kind of a bit late by then for any kind of you know sensible planning to get going. So it's difficult to know where you are. Um, obviously, we've walked qualification without any real trouble, but I kind of suspect that you know once we get there and again come up someone, some teams that are half decent, and then when we might struggle. But um, I kind of look at, looked at the teams that we're going to play. Obviously, we've got three group games. We've got Russia, Slovakia, and um, somebody else that I can't remember at the minute. Who else have we got? Wales, no? Yeah, Wales. How could you forget Wales? Yeah, and uh, and if we get through against them in the next uh, round, they're, again, they're, they're not great teams that we're looking likely to play, like the, the Czechs, the Poles, and... Romania and teams like that that we're most likely to get so you know I think we'll do okay in terms of playing against those but we'll come unstuck as usual against um, the better teams Is this where sort of I mean part of the thinking and part of the uh, the England pieces you wrote were um, was that you had players from teams that wouldn't usually get games or see the squad at all so players from Bournemouth um, I mean, Steve Cook was in there, Charlie Daniels, a few sort of players who hadn't even played for England. And I guess one of the perks of including players like that is that you know every match for them in the Premier League, when you're in a in a relegation battle, is a, a big game, so to speak. And they wouldn't be used to games against you know the Czechs or or these sort of mid-range sides that are not far off what you consider in the Premier League as your sort of Everton's potentially in your. Uh, you know, you're more like mid-table teams. Is that you know part of the thinking involved as well, or is it more just a, a minutes thing? Um, well, d- d- the initial stuff I looked at was basically just getting a list of players of who is there to pick from, and you know, minutes was a big thing from that. And if you're playing regular football for any Premier League team, I mean, it's not like we've got a massive pool of, of players to choose from. And I think there was about seventy odd players that kind of are looking likely to play half the minutes available to them. Um, in the league so it's kind of I mean what we keep end up doing is I mean there's probably going to be a lot of talk coming up soon about people like you know Welbeck and Wilshire and Rooney and are they going to be fit and you end up like picking six or seven players that you know have barely played Um, and can you trust them not to break down when you're kind of there and there's a whole lot there's like 50, 60 other players around that never get even talked about that you know could fit in, but never really get the chance. So, yeah, I mean, I mean the Bournemouth thing is quite interesting because obviously against the teams that we're going to be playing, we're going to have a lot of the football. And, you know, Bournemouth are a team that's come up and they are, you know, they're, they're, they try to play football. They're, their footballers are used to passing the ball around. And, you know, they might, you know, just be a better fit than the players that actually are in people's minds and, and play already so it's just you know getting a grip on what players do do week to week and why wouldn't you want them you know in your England side doing the same things 
Um, so a follow-up that I've got, and it's actually a question for Sam. Uh, should Marcus Rashford be going to the Euros? No, because he should <laughs> wait and keep healthy over the summer and have as much rest as possible before our uh, Champions League campaign kicks off early with a qualifier after we finish fourth. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but it's quite interesting, you know. He's literally played, what, like a game and a half, and the people are talking about him getting into the squad and he's barely played a, a, like a first team game yep. and and there's, there's a whole bunch of players that are playing week in week out for unfashionable teams that just don't even get discussed and you know it's super annoying and it's, it's the same thing again about sort of ensuring team players are uh, I think the biggest problem with international football is making sure the whole team is gelled and you only have I mean Miss Sam and myself were at the uh, Leicester Tactical Insights event and both Eric Cameron, the uh, Swedish coach, and Roy Hodgson both said you have the players for like a maximum two weeks every time. And so in that yeah. time, you really need to optimize like uh, you know a formation that they're familiar with. So you know with Bournemouth and these teams, they all play. Say like you know maybe Danny Drinkwater for Leicester, he's used to the sort of maybe four three three four four two and doesn't have to relearn the four two three one if you know he were to get into the England squad and, and play the Euros. So I think there are a lot of uh, differences between how we think about club football and how we think about national team football that potentially we aren't sort of recognising the, the differences, you know, in the actual national team setup. Yeah, I mean, it's something I looked at in, in one of my pieces is, you know, I think 90% of the setups in the Premier League are 4-2-3-1, but I think England are kind of playing a 4-3-3. Um, so you kind of, you're getting those players together for a couple of weeks max at a time. And you're having to you know, tweak roles and put square pegs in round holes when there's the, you, you're kind of limiting, you know, your efficiency of, of, of what you can do. So I'm all for, you know, if it, if it was me, I'd be playing some kind of four-two-three-one variant because that's what everybody does. And you know, a backup plan could be using, you know, the four-four-two. Kind of setup that Leicester do. I mean, it's interesting because I've been looking at the uh, the England DNA stuff that they kind of announced with the whole opening of St George's Park like eighteen months ago, and it, it talks about like England will seek to dominate possession and all these kinds of things. And at the minute, we've got Leicester who were doing the opposite in the Premier League, and it looks like they're going to win. It's, it, it seems to me like we've we've looked at all the other countries that have been successful in the past you know like Germany and Spain and and the Netherlands and we're kind of putting a false stamp on, on on what we do and of course by the time we've come round to taking on everybody else's uh, procedures and how they drill their coaching and all the rest of it they'll have moved on again and we'll still be this kind of step behind so there's a whole different debate about you know about this, this this England DNA and and how we see ourselves going forward. Are we going to put a stamp on and say we're going to play a certain way, or do you just do the best with the players that you've got? So there's a whole range of issues to look into here. So moving on to what you said was what you first really became known for was goalkeeper analytics, and you mentioned that it's progressed sort of more into the mainstream since you started doing it. So I'm curious what you think the current state of goalkeeper analytics is and where you think it's going in the future. Um, it's <clears throat> Well, we're basically still on 
using variants of expected goals really to make keepers. Certainly what I do is I've concentrated on that because that's the data I've collected and that's the data I've got. Um, and it's kind of, for me, I mean, I'm still very interested in that and and what you can do with that in terms of, you know, using it to take up better positions and how aggressive you're going to be as a goalkeeper. Um, so I still like to look at that kind of stuff and there's lots more to do and it takes a lot of time but um, I mean there's other people like Sam Jackson he's looking at the kicking stuff and he's, there's been talk on Twitter this week about the parrying stuff but it's just about getting the data there really and, and going deeper and deeper into it as I say I like to um, marry up as much with video as possible it's, it's really quite a time consuming stuff um in terms of what I personally, it's not particularly looking at other aspects data-wise, it's kind of looking to see what we've got now and how we can kind of influence that in the real world. So I've got, um, uh, I'm in contact with a goalkeeping po coach in uh, Poland who's kind of read my stuff and we don't, when we talk about it, we don't necessarily agree on everything um, in terms of the technicalities of goalkeeping but he's looked at the data and he's you know that I've come up with and he sets his his players you know like targets and KPIs coming from that so the kind of coaching aspect is is really something that I would really like to see more of in terms of um, getting the stuff used that we do know and that, or we think we know and testing it out so that's kind of where I'd like to see it go Do you think that to sort of better evaluate shot stopping as a, as a skill um, we need to evaluate using sort of shot placement expected goals models and not just where the shot's taken from um, Yeah probably I mean, I mean the stuff about my models is I like to keep them as simple as possible as you know, mine's literally just based on shot location, other people who do the XG, um, Colin Trainer and Michael Cayley, Sander at 11, Tegan Laven. I mean, they'll all include that kind of stuff. So there's people already doing it. Um, but, yeah, and yeah, you know, everything helps. But I, I like to keep mine stuff as simple as possible. And I mean, I've got enough data for me to kind of play around with forever which is why I've kind of tried and put as much of my data out as I can because I literally don't have time to look at everything that I do uh, or that I've collected and there's lots of interesting things that you, that you could look at but um, yeah every little helps basically um, <clears throat> whether it's significant I, I'm not sure in terms of how accurate these how much more accurate these models are going to get by adding extra little bits on like shot placement um, but every little helps yeah definitely You mentioned there your expected goals model which is as you said different from a lot of other people's uh, can you explain sort of what's different about your model firstly and why you've created a model that doesn't always match up with what the other people like 11 taken 11 and Michael K have Um Laziness is a massive uh, 
driver for that because it's, I mean it's it's less data for me to collect. But also, as I said, I really like things to be kept simple because there's an audience out there that I need to communicate to, and it's really really difficult to get something out there that's readable that people I don't particularly feel want to get things too technical and if there's too many things inputs and variables that you're putting into the model then it's more difficult for you to communicate that and for people to understand so that's that's one reason and I can't the other main reason is just as I say I use a lot of video and try and marry up what I do with what the video looks like and most shots for me um, they're not really I don't feel that they're worth much to be honest with you um, a lot of them are from distance, they're from bad angles, they're, you know, shots that are taken with not a cat in hell's chance of, of ever going in. So I kind of like to concentrate on, on the good stuff, as it were, and the stuff that actually matters. Um, so that's another reason for it, and I know people will think that's like sacrilege to say that, and I'm probably the only one out there that does just use shots on target, but there you go. So we got quite a few Twitter questions this week, so I thought it would be good to spend uh, some time answering those. Um, yep. So I think what we'll do is me and Sam will just fire one off each uh, until we finish the list and just answer in as quickly or as, as much detail as you want. Um, okay. First one is that the new Everton owner, uh, Farhad Mashiri, I hope I've pronounced that right if he's listening, uh, makes you head of analytics at Everton. What are your top five priorities? What are my top five priorities? Um, I think... Getting a remit is a really big one. You know, there's, there's not really that many successful analytics stories in soccer at the moment. And if we look across the park at our friends over at Liverpool and the setup and the confusion about who does what and what people are responsible for, I don't think it does anybody any favours because a, it doesn't kind of promote accountability for me. So I definitely. You know what is what would be what would my remit be? How influencing am I going to be on? You know what goes on? Are we there just there for show? You know, there's a whole there's a whole raft of questions in that remit stuff. And I, you know, for me, I think it should be clear and communicated to the fans and the press as well, because a lot of fans and certainly the press are pretty confused by. You know, like the stuff that's gone on at Liverpool and who's pointing fingers at who, who and it doesn't really do any favours to the club, I don't think. I'm not really one for this whole keeping it all behind closed doors and the secrecy in case, you know, other clubs find out what we're doing and, you know, catch up with what we're doing. Because, frankly, with the lack of um, success stories, who wants to copy what they're doing? Because it just looks like a bit of a mess at the moment, so... You know, remit and who's accountable for what is a major, major one for me. Um, the second thing I'd do is I would probably hire a team of people around me that are a lot, lot better at doing what I do than I am now. Um, you know, I have no formal background. Like I'm not into maths and stats. The last time I did anything was at school 20 years ago. Um, so you're going to need people that are good with numbers, like proper uh, statisticians, people with PhDs. I would 
get football coaches involved because, you know, without the buy-in from those people, it's a waste of time for me. Um, so, yeah, that's they're the two main things that I would do. Um, another thing I don't think football clubs probably have got a grip of, you know, the level of, that they're at. You know, what we do in our little community is we try and get a hold on that with the underlying numbers. And, you know, there's lots of stories that are around football that clubs generally don't have a, a grasp on where they are. You know, people like Paul Lambert were getting new contracts after, you know, a few good results and then end up getting sacked six months later. Um, Everton themselves, they give a new contract to Roberto Martinez after that first season when, you know, the numbers for me looked like a lot of that was defensive luck. And now we're kind of floundering in the bottom half mid-table for the last two years, so... They're the main things. It's just kind of getting a grip on situations, really, and then going from there. So the next question we got, which I think is related to something that was said on this podcast, is that keeper stats have consistently ranked Larissa as an average keeper, while his mainstream reputation is high. Can you explain why? Um, well, the, the stats that he ranks average at would be like shot-stopping stats, um, which, you know, with his... His kind of aggressive style pre Pochettino, he's very aggressive in 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 coming for balls and where he was standing for for shots. And he's basically, for me, the reason why he doesn't look great on the shot stopping stats is because of that, because he's basically reducing reaction time. So he's not shop stopping shots from positions that other keepers are that aren't as aggressive as him. Uh, but since Pochettino's come in, he's kind of stopped doing that so much and he's a lot more he's not tied to his line but he's, a, he's certainly a lot more conservative and both his numbers and Tottenham's look a hell of a lot better in the last year since since he stopped doing that so I suppose he's in the media the sweet piece of things um, getting pretty a lot of press because of Neuer really but you know like Neuer is at the top of his game doing that and he makes good decisions and you know he's very proactive and when generally when he comes from Paul he, he gets it whereas you know Loris for me wasn't quite doing that but because he was at least trying when nobody else was then he gets to be quite popular with fans in the media so that's my take on it. Are there any other players in the league that you think are benefiting from this Loris effect? where the sort of reputation of the players higher than their actual uh, performances or objective performances suggest that they actually are? Well, goalkeeping wise, do you uh, um, Any, any really. Well, that's, if, if we stick to goalkeepers, I'd probably say I wrote a piece on uh, Jack Buckland at Christmas. Um, and his shot stopping was horrendously good. And that he was stopping nearly everything that came and recently he's kind of um, that slowed down a bit but basically uh, what I was writing about that a lot of that was driven by a big 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 save percentage from close in and in what I suppose what the XG people call the danger zone which you know keepers have a 50-50 kind of chance of saving those shots on average over the season and he was like at 80% so there's a big, big clamour for him at that time. 
because he was literally letting in nothing that he should be like he's challenging Joe Hart and all the rest of it and you know that was inevitable that that was going to come down and it has come down and you know that's kind of quietened down a bit and now people you know are wanting Fraser Forster to come into the side and now after saving everything he's had a couple of mistakes in the last few weeks so it's there's there's loads of examples and there's lots of examples keepers where you know the analytics scene and there's loads of chat about people on hot streaks and you know kind of the inevitability that that will regress back to where it should be over time so there's lots of examples of that yeah our next question is would the love child of Moyes and Martinez be the perfect Everton manage, manager and if you had to choose one which one would you pick for next season <laughs> um, yeah I've often thought that you know they're, they're kind of two guys at the opposite ends of the uh, the risk spectrum aren't they we, we've got you know Martinez now where we're looking great going forward and ridiculous scoring percentage and the opposite at the back whereas you know, Moyes was probably the the opposite, and I've often thought that a hybrid would be nice. But then you kind of get it'd be like two bad devils on your shoulders of two extremes, and you probably end up driving yourself mad. But um, if I was picking for next season and we're building something, then I would probably always go with Moyes because he's got a track record of of building from. You know, from scratch with not a lot of money, and it'd be interesting to see what he could do with money. But you know, realistically, with a new billionaire at the club, then I wouldn't really want either of them, and I'd probably want somebody else to come in. Don't ask me who that's going to be. I don't know. Tim Sherwood. <laughs> Tactics, Tim. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, next question: If you change one thing in the modern day football analysis, what would it be? Um, in, ter- in terms of stuff in the media, I mean, most of what we see are just like thousands and thousands of reruns of controversial decisions, and half of the chat afterwards is based on that, rather than you know, kind of technical aspects of the game. So, yeah, probably less having a go at refs and more having a go at players, or you know, looking at what players do that are good with some good examples and the other thing I think we generally in this country at least is I'd like to see people being a bit more open to you know analysis I'm not sure fans are quite that open to kind of intellectualizing football and they'd just rather be entertained so I think that kind of harms our football culture a bit for me I wish people were a bit more open to um discussion instead of switching off once people get a bit technical and if you could sign any goalkeeper for Everton which keeper would you sign and it says here as a note realistic signings only <laughs> um, wow um, well all the ones that I like are already tied to top clubs so they're out um, I would if we stuck to the Premier League, there's, there's people like Begovic and Vorm who are backing up other people and they're probably good enough to, well they definitely are good enough to be Premier League regulars and they're probably certainly better than what Everton have got now so I'd probably go for them as a realistic thing from the, from the Premier League at the minute. Um, but it's 
it's the realistic thing's quite an interesting thing with the money that's coming in. I mean, we don't really know what's going to be realistic going forward, do we? With with transfers and all the money washing about. So, yeah, I don't know. But those two, I would pick that we would have a realistic chance of getting, and they would come, and they'd be better than what we've got. And one final question: What physically should we see a good goalkeeper do and not do? Okay, um, physically, um, bra- bravery. Um, instead, when I'm watching the Premier League at the minute, this, this Courtois and Czech, they seem to, you know, like to dominate aerially, and they're they're good at dominating their box and coming for high balls and stuff like that um, and there's a lot of keepers that are rooted to their line I mean even my pe- my favourite keepers of mine like De Gea is a brilliant shot stopper but he doesn't he doesn't physically dominate um, his area or anything like that so physically I'd like to see more keepers do that because you know it takes pressure off Um and fans like to see, I think. Um, every, <laughs> this is going to sound funny as well, but you know, when you see keepers on TV, a lot of them look like they're carrying a bit too much timber for me. Um, they carry too much weight. Are they too bulky from gym work? And you know, what kind of price do they pay on that for their footwork or their flexibility or what stuff like that? So that's another thing that I would pick out. But maybe people wouldn't look at but uh, I think for me the most important thing for a keeper is his decision making rather than anything physical they do because you know, once they're at this level there may be much of a muchness physically I would have said I think that's a good place to wrap it up is there anything you'd like to plug before we head out um, well you know as I said before Football Fact Man on Twitter, my website's Different Game, um, and my Tableau stuff is all linked there, and it's got all the XG stuff that people can, and it's got links to all the data that people can steal as much as they want to and use, because, you know, the aim of me sharing that kind of stuff was was to get people using it, and um, when I do log into it now, there are lots of people in it, and I kind of get the feeling that it's a lot of fantasy football people doing it. Um, rather than people writing about the game which is kind of what I'd prefer to see so go and have a look at that and steal the data and do something with it and you know share it around on Twitter Sweet, thanks for your time Paul Thank you guys